This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. So great to have you with us again. I'm going to start out by saying I'm glad Cuomo's leaving. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York finally capitulated to the forces that were trying to get him out of office. Unfortunately, he was not forced from office over his nursing home death scandal, which is the reason he really should have been tossed from office. But it was over the sexual harassment allegations. He'll be resigning in 14 days. And Kathy Hochul, the lieutenant governor, will become the first woman governor of New York, who apparently is to the left of Cuomo. So lots of fun ahead for the state of New York. And there are a number of people opining that what really went wrong was Cuomo was posing some kind of political threat to Kamala Harris, who, as we all know, has been less than popular as the vice president of the United States. Of course, I would argue that even Anthony Weiner probably could be Kamala Harris. I don't know anybody on the political spectrum who thinks Kamala Harris is awesome. Not anybody. So we'll see what comes of that. But I have something more important that I think I want to take some time on today. And I have been thinking a lot about the COVID-19 debacle and what's going on with BLM and critical race theory and all of the stuff that's been churning around in our culture for the last year and a half in particular. And I was coming across a video when I was on, you know how you're on YouTube sometimes and they'll suggest videos. This video pops up on the subject of mass psychosis. Now, I have no idea why that particular video showed up on my feed because I don't really look into psychiatry videos or any sort of psychological videos necessarily, but it caught my attention. And the reason it caught my attention was because it led me to look at some of the material on the website of the organization that had put the video up. And they were talking about the issue of mass psychosis as the greatest threat to humanity. Now, again, I'm not coming at this from a psych point of view because I'm not into psychiatry or psychology necessarily. I I think there's some elements of it that you can talk about that are interesting, but I go to the word of God to inform my worldview and to inform me on what God's truth is. Nevertheless, I came across this article. This was from March and it was called, Is a Mass Psychosis the Greatest Threat to Humanity? And I wanted to share a little bit of this with you. It's by the new Agora, but this video is put out apparently in tandem with this group called the Academy of Ideas, who are couple of people from Canada. I have no idea who these people are, but I thought this was interesting. All one's neighbors are in the grip of some uncontrolled and uncontrollable fear. In lunatic asylums, it is a well-known fact that patients are far more dangerous when suffering from fear than when moved by rage or hatred. That's a quote from Carl Jung. According to Jung, the greatest threat to civilization, they say, lies not with the forces of nature, nor with any physical disease, but with our inability to deal with the forces of our own psyche. We are our own worst enemies, or as the Latin proverb puts it, man is wolf to man. 
In Civilization and Transition, Jung states that this proverb is a sad yet eternal truism, and our wolf-like tendencies come most prominently into play at those times of history when mental illness becomes the norm rather than the exception in a society, a situation which Jung termed a psychic epidemic. Now, just stay with me here. He writes, indeed, it is becoming ever more obvious That it is not famine, not earthquakes, not microbes, not cancer, but man himself, who is man's greatest danger to man. Amen. That's the truth. For the simple reason that there is no adequate protection against psychic epidemics, which are infinitely more devastating than the worst of natural catastrophes. Again, quote from Carl Jung. In the video, they talk about exploring some of the psychic epidemics that pop up in history. A mass psychosis, they say, is an epidemic of madness. And it occurs when a large portion of a society loses touch with reality and descends into delusions. Such a phenomenon is not a thing of fiction. Two examples of mass psychosis are the American and European witch hunts, they say, in the 16th and 17th centuries, and the rise of totalitarianism in the 20th century. Now, they go down to this quote, the totalitarian experiments of the 20th century are a more recent and a more deadly example of a mass psychosis. In countries such as the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, North Korea, China, and Cambodia, it was a collective detachment from reality and a descent into delusions and paranoia that permitted the rise of the all-powerful totalitarian governments that destroyed the lives of hundreds of millions. Quoting from Juice Merlou, it was the totalitarian systems of the 20th century that represent a kind of collective psychosis. Whether gradually or suddenly, reason and common human decency are no longer possible in such a system. There is only a pervasive atmosphere of terror and a projection of the enemy imagined to be in our midst. Hmm. Who does that sound like? Who's the enemy in our midst? Well, you think of the Biden administration saying white supremacists. They're the greatest threat to this country. They're in our midst. That's why we're jailing all these people from the January 6th trespassing problem. So we have all these people, all these people we have to protect you from or people who are unvaccinated. (gasps) They're the enemy in our midst. Think about this for a moment. Continuing with the quote, thus society turns on itself, urged on by the ruling authorities. They go on to say, when a mass psychosis occurs, the results are devastating. Jung studied this phenomenon thoroughly and wrote that the individuals who make up the infected society become morally and spiritually inferior. They sink unconsciously to an inferior intellectual level. They become more unreasonable, irresponsible, emotional, erratic, and unreliable. And worst of all, crimes the individual alone could never stand are freely committed by the group smitten by madness. Now, I would say as a Christian, what we're really looking at in our society is the fulfillment of Romans 1. I've said this many, many times. The problem we have in our society is God has given us over to a depraved mind. When you have a depraved mind, you have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. You have rejected God, the creator, and you are instead worshiping and serving the creation, the created order, rather than the one who made it. And so God eventually gives over societies that have gotten into this position and gives them over to a depraved mind. And it begins with sexual immorality and it descends into homosexuality and it goes downhill from there. How in the world can we deny that that's where the United States is at the moment? Now, they may say from a psychological standpoint that this is mass psychosis, mass mental illness. I don't know. What would you call the transgender movement? That That's not normal and it's not 
reasonable and it's not logical and it's not reality. And yet, how many people are getting into this as some kind of wonderful phenomenon? And you're just looking, I'm sure you're like me, where you look at a lot of what's going on in this society and you think to yourself, these people are insane. And you know what? I don't think we're completely wrong when we say that. But what we're really seeing is the effects of sin and a depraved mind. And we see people inventing evil the way it talks about in Romans 1. We see people who are increasingly godless and increasingly ruthless. That's where we are. But what's interesting about it is when you couple this whole reality that we're seeing in front of us and you try to figure out why in the world people are falling for these delusions that have captured the minds of so many people who have no business standing up in front of thinking individuals and trying to guide them in any particular way. Now, what am I talking about specifically? A couple of examples that I'm going to get into in just a couple of minutes have to do with some of these voices inside the church in many respects saying some of the most outrageous, insane charges against normal Christians who haven't done anything that they're being accused of doing. And these people are given platforms and they're given book deals and they're honored by the mainstream media, particularly when it comes to the whole idea of critical race theory. I'm seeing the rhetoric ramping up against whites, white evangelicals, in particular, when we're talking about the church as being just a bunch of disgusting racists, and it's absent any proof. It is something, again, that critical race theory has established from the beginning. You are part of a structure of racism, and they don't have to prove it. They don't have to make the case. They don't have to go through any individual pieces of evidence to present to you in order to convince you, you hapless racist, let me show you why you're a hapless racist. And the more you listen to these people talk, the more they sound insane. And I think we ought to call it for what it is. It's insanity. And I'm going to give you some examples of what I'm talking about when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Don't go away. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Kirk Cameron, and I am honored to be partnering with the Ministry of Preborn to help moms choose life. Actor Kirk Cameron supports Preborn. My four 
oldest children were adopted. That is because of caring and compassionate people who help those young mothers choose life. My wife is an adopted child and her birth mother chose life for her. If it weren't for those caring individuals that help those young moms value the sacredness of life, I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have my four adopted children, and the two natural born children that we have wouldn't exist either. My whole family is here because of people that are involved with ministries like Preborn. Help moms choose life with Preborn. Your gift of $28 provides an abortion-minded mother a potentially life-saving ultrasound. $140 could save five babies. You can give now at 855-601-BABY. That's 855-601-2229 or visit preborn.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, some are wondering whether or not our society is entrapped in some kind of mass mental illness, mass psychosis. I think the problem is sin. I think there may be some mental illness out there. Some people you'd have to conclude there's something more wrong with them just than sin because we're all sinners and not all of us are insane. But when you look around American society today and you begin to ask the question, why are all these people so insane? What is driving them? It isn't reason. It isn't logic. It's their feelings and their experiences. And I would argue their ability, they're easy to brainwash. Their ability to be manipulated by media, their ability to be manipulated by politicians. We've seen this with COVID. You must shun the unvaccinated. Is that scientific? It doesn't matter. All you have to do is get people worked up into a frenzy and they're in the palm of your hand. And don't you think these politicians know it? You need to talk to people out there about how unfair it is that that person can buy an expensive house and you're stuck in an apartment. Now, if we were logical and reasonable, we might talk about the reasons that that is so. Perhaps you have a lower paying job. You had a major in college that was not going to be as fruitful for you financially when you got out on the other side and got that diploma and the guy who has the house down the street went into a better major, had better grades, had better test scores, had better opportunities. No, because we're in an age of equity, baby. You can't talk about somebody earning something more than I did because that's not fair. That's insane. That's insane. It's the communist mindset. It's been tried before. It doesn't work. It decimates human beings. It left 140 million people dead in its wake in the 20th century. And yet here we are in the United States, the country that ought to know better than anybody else how horrible communism is. And we're just embracing it. Why? Because people are brainwashed. And I would say in some cases, acting insane. Now, where does this leave us in the church? I want to go to this story that was just out over at Campus Reform. And it asks this question, are religious critical race theory opponents too white to be evangelical? They talk about a panel that took place at the end of June, and this was a real doozy. It involved some professors from Vanderbilt, Georgetown, and Vassar. They were part of this panel during a church-based event on critical race theory. It was held by this Friendship West Church. This is, I I can't even describe this. You have to listen to it to understand what I'm talking about. Here's Friendship West Baptist Church Pastor Frederick Haynes kicking things off by baselessly insulting white Christians. Here's cut one. The reason that I felt we should have this conversation 
uh, for the next two Wednesdays around critical race theory is that there has been a deliberate campaign of disinformation around critical race theory and wokeness uh, that has taken place recently. What is even worse uh, is the fact that baptized bigotry uh, from the Christian right, from right-wing evangelicals who are too white to be evangelical, uh, has literally uh, caused those in seminaries, uh, six Southern Baptist Convention affiliated seminaries uh, came out with the statement, the leadership of those seminaries came out denouncing critical race theory. Of course, they would not have a conversation about it because they are ignorant of it. Uh, okay. Uh, I don't know what it means that you're too white to be evangelical. Did Jesus ever say anything like that whatsoever, that your skin color will exclude you from the kingdom of God? Isn't that what they're actually trying to say is evil? When you denigrate somebody's skin color in the name of Christianity, they're the ones doing it. Now, it gets worse. Oh, does it get worse? Another panelist was Dr. Stacy Floyd Thomas, a professor of ethics and society at Vanderbilt University Divinity School. She's the executive director of both the Society of Christian Ethics and the nationally acclaimed Black Religious Scholars Group, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm just going to let her speak for herself on this issue of critical race theory in the church. This is cut to. What good is the word of Jesus? to those whose backs are against the wall. So, so critical race theology then is, is to say that if we are to believe as that Jesus is literally on the side of the oppressor, Jesus who was wounded for our transgression, cast eyes for our, by, for our sins while being lynched by the state. Come on. If Jesus was to heal us, right? We can only be healed if those same stripes color our Christian consciousness, our character, and those flags that are waving in our sanctuary. I don't even know what she's talking about. I don't know what she's talking about. Jesus is on the side of the oppressed. No, Jesus is on the side of sinners. Jesus came to lay down his life for sinners, sinners of all races, all ethnicities, all tribes, all nationalities, and anybody who repents of his sin and puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead will be justified before a holy God because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to him and the sin of the sinner imputed to Christ. The great exchange takes place and there is reconciliation between God and man because of what Jesus has done through his shed blood on the cross. He wasn't lynched by the state. He was crucified. And the reason he went to that cross, might I point out, is because when the crowd, the crowd, not the state, but the crowd was asked, which prisoner shall we release? You remember who they wanted released? It wasn't Jesus Christ. It was Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas released. Don't blame his death on the state because we are all guilty. As it has been said, we all bear those nails, those nails that pierced him. We all carry them around in our pockets, so to speak. One more quote here from Dr. Stacy Floyd Thomas. This is cut three. Critical race theology reckons with doing the work of Jesus as humans. Jesus has historical and hermeneutical significance, but not as the son of God, 
simply, but as a real human where a black man carried the cross for him and the state lynched him. And in his real living, whether it was with the Syrophoenician woman, whether it was with the woman who, who was accused of adultery, or whether it was with his mother telling him and trying to give radical hospitality to her sister, I am activating your miraculous power now because I need you to make a wine out of water, hmm. right? That, that is this, that, that hearkens what we're supposed to be as Christians. And to do that challenges the very core of white evangelicals who have considered their law to be God. Hmm. And not in serving a God, but only having a God that is in service to their possessiveness and possession of the demonarchy, as Loris Williams will say, of heteropatriarchal racism. What is she talking about? And where's the joy of the Lord, by the way? All she's doing is screaming, just yelling. It's crazy. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense, does it? It's like there has been a brainwashing that has taken place, and she's a true believer. And in fact, it reminds me of that book, The True Believer. I don't know if you've ever read this. It's a good book. Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, Thoughts on the Nature of Mass Movements. It's not a Christian book, but it's worth reading because it talks a lot about mentalities and how mentalities are created in societies that go into movements and why people do what they do. And there's a lot to be learned there. But here's another example of this. The pastor who was complaining about the anti-critical race theory statement from the six heads of the seminaries in the Southern Baptist Convention apparently never heard this particular uh, video excerpt from Dr. Al Mohler, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That guy has never seen a position he didn't take at one time or another. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't like his position today, he'll change it tomorrow. And he's just a total politician. This was uncovered back in 2019. Listen to what Al Mohler had to say then. Cut four. I've been president of Southern for 25 years now and in Southern Baptist leadership for longer than that in various roles. I was a part of the, Sesqu I preached the sesquicentennial sermon of the Southern Baptist Convention in 1995 when, when we were 150 years old. And I was a part of the group that with African-American brothers met together and we had a statement of repentance for slavery um, into which the Southern Baptist Convention had been born and in which Southern Baptists were complicit. Um, but my heart and my thinking and my biblical theology is in a very different place than it was in 1995. And so I've never really said this publicly. Maybe this is the right place to say it. In 1995, I think what Southern Baptists wanted to say was that we were born in a racist past. We've been complicit with racism through segregation and Jim Crow all the way to the very recent present. We're drawing a line in 1995 and saying that was then, this is now. I think that was honest. I think it was wrong, but I think it was honest. I didn't feel that it was wrong in 1995, but the weight of history indicates that was wrong. What was wrong is that that was then is not over, and you can't just say we're drawing a line in 1995, as honestly as you might try to say it, and say the past is merely the past, now we're moving forward. The sermon I preached that, to which you make reference was occasioned by my feeling of grief and recognizing the theological complicity of my own denomination in racism 
And so it was an exercise in biblical exposition and biblical theology in an often neglected text of Scripture from Genesis 11, demonstrating that it's going to take everything we've got in the gospel and in the scriptures uh, to escape uh, the, the trap of history. But we're not, we can't just draw a line. We're going to have to deal it. We're going to have to confront it. We're going to have to recognize the word stain is exactly the right word. It's a stain that we're going to carry as a denomination forever till Jesus comes. Well, that's some gospel, isn't it? You can never, ever, 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 ever be cleansed. I object. Those who come to Christ in repentance are cleansed, and their sins are far as the East is from the West. That's the gospel. Don't be brainwashed. Follow the Word of God. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Meffer Today, and now here's your host, Janet Meffer. While the liberal elites in America have long pointed to Europe as a model for modern thinking and political inspiration, one wonders then what those elites will think of a comprehensive new study released by the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which shows just how conservative most European nations are when it comes to elective abortion limits. This study comes just as the Supreme Court is poised to hear that important abortion case out of Mississippi concerning its Gestational Age Act, which bans killing babies in elective abortions after 15 weeks. Pro-abortion activists have decried the law as extreme, but as it turns out, Mississippi's limit on elective abortions is actually in the mainstream of European law. We're going to find out more about it now from Chuck Donovan, who is president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And Chuck, great to have you with us. How are you? Always great to be on, Janet. Thank you. Thank you. In this study, you have compared the Gestational Age Act in Mississippi, as I mentioned, with those limits in the European community. The findings are rather startling. Tell people what you found out. Well, Janet, uh, most people think of the United States as uh, being moderate or fairly conservative relative to our European friends. When it comes to abortion, though, and this has been true for decades, although we don't like to recognize it, uh, Europe is actually more conservative than the United States. And to illustrate or analyze the question, uh, we looked at 50 countries in Europe. Our only criterion was that uh, they have at least 1 million population, so some of the smaller uh, principalities are not covered. But of those 50 nations, the full 47 have, let's just say, more limits on abortion than Mississippi will have if the Supreme Court upholds the 15-week limit. So Mississippi, if it were in Europe, would be actually a left of center in its abortion policy. It just shows how radical we are in the United States. Well, yeah. Now, before getting into some of the details on these countries you've examined, just going back to that statement you just made, that the United States is way more liberal, way more permissive on killing children through abortion than Europe is. What is the reason for that? Because there has always been a lot of discussion about the United States. Oh, we're a much more Christian country and all these kinds of things. And Europe has rejected God. Well, then why is there a reversal of sorts when it comes to abortion policy? 
Well, abortion was uh, the original exception carved out by the Supreme Court from what I would call constitutional government. In Roe v. Wade in 1973, the court essentially said uh, you could limit abortion in the second trimester, but only for the health of the mother, so that means there could be regulations. But then in the last uh, trimester of pregnancy, the last uh, 12 to 14 weeks, basically, uh, the court said in its second ruling in Doe v. Bolton, that you had to allow exceptions for physical health, mental health, economic health. And at the end of the day, operationally, the only limit on abortion in the United States is the willingness of a doctor to take a life that late in pregnancy. Really, there's not much protection at all for the baby. It's horrendous. And hopefully this Mississippi law that will be examined by the Supreme Court this fall will make a big difference. But let's talk about some of these countries, because it's quite stunning to look at this. Five European countries limit elective abortion to 10 weeks gestation, including Croatia, Portugal, Serbia, Slovenia and Turkey. Uh, I don't know if any liberal pro-abortion activists have actually looked at this data and commented on it. But what do you make of that 10 weeks gestation? We don't want any weeks gestation allowed, you know, when it comes to killing children in the womb. But that's that's amazing. That's five countries limiting to 10 weeks. That's incredible. Well, they've resisted all of the European countries that um, have uh, limits, and some of them do have really strict limits, like Poland, for example. Uh, They basically have been under extreme pressure from the European Union, from the uh, international consensus at the World Health Organization and other entities uh, that have been promoting abortion on request for quite some time. But uh, what Europe hasn't had that we've had, of course, is the intervention of uh, of national courts or international courts to impose abortion on demand, even though the United Nation, Nations uh, has struggled over this. There's enough pro-life women at the U.N., that the worst of that has been shunted aside. But we here in the United States uh, don't live under any rules that the American people have ever voted for. And we're talking now 48 years since Roe. Uh, We're living under a a created right by the Supreme Court that, as I said earlier, applies to the end of pregnancy when the child is born. Yeah, that's right. So now those countries that allow... 12 to 14 weeks gestation as far as limiting elective abortions. Talk about some of those countries, because they're not all the small former Soviet republics. There are some major European countries who fit into those particular categories. That's true. The two that have limits between 12 and 14 weeks gestation, and have to realize that the European countries define gestation in different ways. It can be from the last menstrual period, or it could be two weeks later at fertilization. But the two that are between those two weeks are Austria and Italy, both of which are 90-day limits on elective abortion. And then there are 27 countries, and we detail those. I won't bore your listeners to tears reading them off, but they limit it at 12 weeks. And this would be a majority of the European countries we looked at. So uh, there are three weeks more limiting than, than the state of Mississippi is seeking permission to be. That's really incredible. Well, you know, eight countries also, as you found out, don't allow elective abortion. Who would that all be in in that category of not allowing elective abortions? Well, I mentioned Poland. There's Great Britain and Finland. Uh, these, we, when we did the analysis, we uh, looked at the statutes involved. Uh, Great Britain is somewhat permissive, all to say the least. But it, even in statutory form, it requires the woman to have a reason, have two doctors that sign off on that reason. It can include social concerns, but 
uh, unlike the United States, where a woman needs say no reason other than she's seeking the abortion as her right, um, these are limiting factors. So we would not classify Great Britain as being in this class as the three most liberal countries in Europe. Uh, three out of 50 are actually arguably as, as liberal as the United States and more liberal than Mississippi. Incredible. So a vast majority here of the countries that you looked at and the areas that you looked at in Europe are, are more restrictive on abortion law than we are in the United States, certainly in Mississippi in particular. But no European nation allows elective abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. So just on that point alone, it seems we have really good evidence on a lot of fronts, including scientific front, to argue there's no way you should allow abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, even for those who admire Europe so much, including some justices on the Supreme Court. I mean, how in the world can you look at this and say we're the extreme ones uh, when you look at the rest of the world? Well, I think that's right, Janet. The other thing that we have underscored, and the Charlotte Lozier Institute filed a brief with the Supreme Court in support of Mississippi last week, and our legal brief dwelt on the science, which is, um, besides statistics, which we analyze. We're very interested in the science of human development. And the truth is, I would say virtually every scientific development, every medical advance in the perinatal revolution, every insight into we have into just the amazing and explosive growth of the child in the womb, uh, every use of ultrasound to have a, a look into the womb and to see what's going on, uh, every ability to treat children in the womb increasingly for medical conditions, all of them have come down on the, in favor of life. And in 1973, the Supreme Court uh, was even to argue that viability was as late as 28 weeks. Well, as you, as you know, babies are being treated for very serious medical conditions uh, prior to 20 weeks in the womb. They're also being delivered at 21 weeks and just a little bit above that. And with active treatment, they are surviving and with fewer medical complications. So the science has left Roe v. Wade behind, and now we're hoping, of course, the court will do the same. Well, that's what we're all hoping and praying for, because this is a very big case. In fact, one of the interesting things that the pro-aborts have been discussing is the fact that this could overturn Roe v. Wade. Do you think that that's a likelihood, Chuck? Are you confident at all that the Supreme Court would go to those lengths and actually say Roe is unconstitutional? I can't say I'm confident. Uh, I think we've seen this court as conservative as it is. I think it's taken steps carefully. Uh, On the other hand, the question that the court has framed for itself, which is, uh, are limits on abortion before viability, which even now is understood to be five or six weeks later than Mississippi, are are these limits constitutional? So it squarely asks the right question, and if the answer is a plain and simple yes, the court will have to mark out what its reasoning is now. Well, I'll tell you what, hang on just a moment. We're going to pause for a short break. We'll be back with Chuck Donovan, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger, or especially hunger, is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa. On average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. As we went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Bibleist believer praying for God's Word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, as we know, in a few months, the U.S. Supreme Court will be taking up this very important case out of Mississippi concerning its Gestational Age Act. And they'll be looking at the law in particular in Mississippi that limits elective abortion to 15 weeks gestation. You can't have an elective abortion after 15 weeks. They're also going to be considering whether all pre-viability limitations on abortion are unconstitutional. Chuck Donovan is with us, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is out with this great study showing just how conservative by comparison Europe is when it comes to abortion law, in particular the law in Mississippi. You were saying, Chuck, before we went to break when I was asking how confident do you feel, and the answer is not very, about the likelihood of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe when it comes to a decision in this Mississippi case. But you were you were really stressing this idea that, we, that there is a consideration here uh, on limits on abortion before viability and whether or not they're constitutional. Can you explain a little bit for listeners why that's such an important consideration and and which way it is likely to go considering a lot of the scientific facts that you guys have pointed out that have come up during the past 40-some years since the Roe decision came down? Sure. Well, the court has created this dissension in the law because after Roe v. Wade basically said abortion is legal and to birth, uh, the court did subsequently consider uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which uh, hurt our cause quite a bit. Yep. But later on, Gonzalez and V. Carhart, the court basically said a ban on partial birth abortion uh, was constitutional. Now, this was enacted by Congress, uh, signed into by President Bush. And what the law basically said is an abortion technique, which involved removing the baby most of the way from the, the womb, 
and then uh, basically assaulting the baby by opening uh, its spinal column at the neck and uh, draining the baby's brains away. Uh, I hate to use that list description, but basically the court recognized what that was, said the states could outlaw, outlaw it, and it was, uh, and Congress could. And uh, this technique um, was in use before viability. It was the first time the court had really said a prescription of this kind could stand. But even so, that, that prescription did not put the baby from being aborted. It simply said you could only do it a certain way. Uh, now right now with Mississippi, we've got an actual ban on the abortion itself. So the baby is recognized and protected. So opening that up would, in fact, open up the holdings of uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe v. Wade. Yeah. It would be in a very exciting thing, and it may lead to other limits, which are also coming their way to the court soon. Right. Well, now, Life News, I believe it was, pointed out that Mississippi's law highlights this conflict between the Roe ruling and the court's repeated affirmation in subsequent cases that states have a legitimate interest in limiting abortion and protecting vulnerable and innocent life from the moment of conception. So that's what they're really going to be looking at. What are the important considerations in this case? And how do things like your study on what's going on in Europe and some of the science that you're bringing forward forward in your amicus brief how do you think those things will play into or could potentially play into the justices' ruling in this particular Mississippi case? Well, we're trying to obviously uh, deal with the questions of law, and international law has been cited by liberals more often as something that should affect U.S. law. So we're, I think we'd say we're tweaking the liberals a little bit, but also reassuring the conservatives that if they uphold the Mississippi statute, uh, they're upholding what's a very common statute around the world. In fact, it's slightly more liberal uh, than European nations. Uh, we will not be an outlier. In fact, we're an outlier right now with our radical policies. So uh, we want to remind the court that there are plenty of other ways to reason to limits on abortion. Uh, but we also want to let the court know that the uh, science of the unborn, the, the treatment that's uh, taking place for basically being treated for spina bifida, yeah. uh, surgeries being performed in the womb, new studies suggest the long-term benefits are as good as the short-term benefits for these babies. Babies are getting stem cell treatments in the womb. Uh, babies are surviving six, seven weeks earlier than they did in in the time of Roe v. Wade. Uh, babies at the age in Mississippi of 15 weeks uh, pump 26, blood, uh, 26 gallons of blood a day through their systems. They have uh, sensitivity to touch. They may feel pain, which is a morally relevant consideration. All of these things suggest that uh, we went off the rails with Roe v. Wade. The rest of the world didn't follow us. And it's time for the court to back off and let the people decide these issues. Well, this is interesting. Many people have commented on the fact that if Roe ever were to be overturned, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden we'd have no abortion in the United States. It would be a question thrown back to each individual state. If you have the court go in the direction of saying states do have this legitimate interest in limiting abortion, the question then becomes how much freedom does each state have to decide how much limitation can take place. How do you think that whole thing might play out down the road? Because there's so many states that are doing so many different things, some good, some bad. Uh, You know, many people are saying, well, if it's thrown back to the states, then it's going to become a mess, this kind of thing. How are your feelings on where this is headed potentially? 
Well, we think that the biggest concern that is out there right now is the spread of abortion pills in the United States. Uh, Janet, we publish uh, reports on every state's uh, tabulation of their abortion data each year. And what that tabulation shows for 2019 is the majority of states now have uh, chemical abortion happening in almost 50% of their total abortions. So this is a drug that could be flooded into the market uh, harder to regulate than an abortion clinic would be. And we also have the abortion industry being very reckless in recommending abortion mid-pregnancy using pills where they're demonstrably not safe. So we have some concerns on that front. We do think that at least 30 of the American states will probably do everything they can to... uh, eliminate abortion within their borders and uh, you know given some challenges in doing that i think the states will have a lot of success there's already a number of states that have very low rate of abortion if they pay proper attention to supporting uh, women in crisis pregnancies uh, we think they can make progress and if we protect babies in 60 percent of the united states I would just call that a good start. For sure. And that is a really big challenge, the telemedicine and the abortion pills, because even if you outlaw it, then you might have other states that have, you know, it's legal in other states and then women go to other states. But anything is better than Roe, isn't it? I mean, what Roe has unleashed is beyond description in terms of the loss of human life. Well, I'm a person who believes that the wider disrespect for human life uh, for standards, for marriage, for family. Uh, all of these things, I think, have flowed in great part because of allowed violence against the most vulnerable human beings in our midst. And we've lost the sense of the sacredness of human life. To me, it's, uh, it's not a shock that it's spreading to the elderly, uh, to the handicapped over the last uh, few decades, including via abortion, uh, violence in our streets. Yeah, abortion was promised that it was going to make every child a wanted child and every family uh, uh, economically secure. It had the opposite effect, and I think there's a reason why. It's simply part of a uh, culture of violence, if you will, that uh, has, has taken over our country. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, all those empty promises, we see how that's turned out. I thought it was interesting, yeah. too, that the Charlotte Lozier Institute is out with this research on the claim that abortion is a normal experience for mothers. Do you have any you know, insight as to why that narrative has been put out there when the statistics, again, don't back it up? Well, uh, the argument's been made that abortion is essential for the economic well-being of women, that it opens career pathways. And what we have found in a series of three studies looking at 15 years of Medicaid data in states that pay for abortion, we found that abortion falls into a very different kind of pattern. Uh, Only 6% of women actually have abortions uh, on Medicaid. Uh, 94% have uh, children but no abortions. Uh, What we found is that abortion begets abortion. A woman who has one uh, is likely to experience a subsequent pregnancy sooner uh, than a woman who has a child, and moreover, she's more likely to have a second or even third abortion. So it's a cultural thing that perpetuates itself. It's not about building family or career. 
No, it isn't. And that's really a shocking number. Less than 6% of the study population had both births and abortions. I mean, yet again, Chuck, we're seeing the lies that come out of the pro-abortion movement in order to try to normalize abortion as a normal female experience when it's anything but. And the 60 plus million children we're now missing testify to the lie that we've really been had as a nation and it's time to turn things around. We're going to work and pray to that end. And they sure work toward that end at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Chuck Donovan, the president has been spending time with us and we really appreciate you guys. Chuck, thank you so much for being with us again. It's always a delight to talk to you. My pleasure, Janet. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being here. We really appreciate you tuning in to Janet Meffer today each and every day. And we hope you'll join us for another broadcast. $5 is all it takes to send a Bible to Africa. Don't forget, this is our last week trying to get 1,500 Bibles to Africa and more. So if you can help, just dial us toll-free number 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMeffer.com. Thank you.